Before we turn to the Word, I do want to call your attention to one more thing in the bulletin. There is a motion in your bulletin that will be voted on next Sunday regarding the name of our church. We've talked about this several times before. But I want to share with you how it will work a little bit. This is the motion presented uh, that's come from the church council. It will come to the church next Sunday. It'll be an insert in your bulletin, and you will vote on it uh, during the service. So you can imagine that uh, there'll be just a time for you to uh, thoughtfully vote and put it in the offering plate, and, and that's how it will happen. The discussion for the motion will take place this Thursday evening at our members' meeting. So if you have any questions or thoughts or you want to share your feelings about the motion, that's to be done this coming Thursday evening from at 7 o'clock here at the church. And that we're going to have a regular quarterly members meeting at that time. So uh, I encourage you to come uh, for more than that account. Uh, but here, here's, uh, if I can shepherd a little bit in a second, here's what I want to encourage you not to do is to treat next Sunday, to arrive next Sunday without having really thought about it and just to assume that we're taking a survey and we want to know what you think. That's not what we're doing uh, with regards. This is a spiritual question, and there's a lot of thought that has come into where it is today. And so any time that we as members uh, furnish our right to do something like vote, it has an attached responsibility. And here are the responsibilities that I think sit on the membership. One is to consider uh, the reasoning of the leadership that would bring us here. So consider what has been said and what's been expressed. And probably the single best place that's happened is um, the sermon on September 22nd, which if you were here, you heard it. If you were not here on the 22nd, it's available on the website. I really think you should listen to, uh, well, listen to it, but certainly the part relating to the name. I think that was an honest effort to express our reasoning as to why this motion is before us. Uh, Come to the Thursday members meeting and listen. That's another time to come, and there'll be a presentation and a discussion then. And then finally, commit it to prayer. If if you find next Sunday that you feel like it's abrupt, it feels abrupt to you, like, wait a second, we're just filling out a ballot in the middle of a song? That's a good cue that maybe you should abstain. This should not be abrupt. We have a lot of time to be thinking about this on the way there. And then I'll share this last thing with you. This this has uh, come, I feel, from the Spirit uh, with time with the Lord. I don't want anybody to view Sunday as a win or lose issue. It's simply the answer. So whatever happens, it's just the answer, and we move on. And that is, I think, the the spiritually healthy way to view Sunday uh, in the in the vote. Like we said before, it is a real but small question in the church, but we want to care for that. Some have asked about absentee ballots. Uh, we will work on Thursday in the weekly update to have a way to furnish an absentee ballot. We want as many people, we want to enfranchise as many people as we can. Um, uh, so you'll hear more about that later. Okay, to the word. Would you open to John chapter 5, please? John chapter 5, if you're using one of the Bibles. Uh, Provided for you, it's page 769. If you don't own a Bible, that's a gift. Please take it home and use it. And we are in a sermon series uh, entitled Signs. 
And in this sermon series, we're walking through the Gospel of John, and we're looking at the seven miracles that John places before us of Christ, the seven miracles of Christ that he calls signs. He doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs because his opinion, and he's right about this, is that the miracles that Jesus did pointed, pointed people towards a reality of the identity of Christ. In other words, they were signs that were saying something about who Jesus is and why he's come. And so John phrases them as signs. And I think now that this is the third sign that we're in in the Gospel of John, it's worth talking a little bit more broadly about signs, about what encompasses a sign. What comes together to make a sign? Um, Because there's several things. It's not just the act. I'll, I'll use baptism for a moment. Baptism is a sign, by the way. Okay, I'm not saying that there is a miracle that's actually happening in the baptistry, but rather the baptistry is a sign of a miracle that has happened. Okay? Baptism is pointing to the fact that before Christ we were dead in our transgressions, but because of the power of Jesus Christ we've been resurrected to new life. That's what's happening in baptism. That through faith we come, we come to the baptistry, And because of our faith, we receive a life even though we're dead in our transgressions. That's the idea, and that's the sign. And every sign, the act itself says something. So the going down and the coming up expresses something important theologically about our salvation. Okay? In the same way with the signs of Christ. When, when, when our Lord turned the water into wine at the wedding of Cana, that sign itself speaks this idea that uh, God's blessing is overly abundant compared to what we could imagine. That's in that sign. The idea that the wine was the best imaginable wine anyone could have ever had is an important element of that sign that says something about the nature of God. That when he answers, and I know this is true in so many lives, you ever been in a place where you've run out of options and then God's option is so much better than the ones you thought? Or options. That's the sign of the wedding of Cana. Likewise, the sign of last week of Jesus healing somebody who's not even present. Crossing time and space, your son's healed. That says something about the person of God. That, wow, even, even at a distance, the earth bows to him. So you have the sign, and then you have the setting. The setting around the sign that gives increased depth or meaning to the sign. In baptism, it would be this. For a child to come up and be baptized is great. If that child is your child, it's better. It means more. There's a greater depth, right? Because you know, what, you know what's gone into the life of that child. Um, if there's a person who is coming to be baptized, who you've walked with for years and years and years and years, it's better for you. There's, there's, more, there's more that's going on there. If somebody got up and said, before I was a Christian, I did this and I did that and I was this and I was that and I was this and I was that. Well, there's somebody in this room who is this and they're that and they've done this and they're doing that. And that, that setting, that connection speaks. If, if someone gets up to baptism and says, I was raised in the church, I feel like I've always known the Lord, but I'm here in in obedience because that's what God calls us faithful to do. Well, there's somebody in the room who's like that. And it's the same with the sign. God gives a setting around the sign that gives us a stronger sense of what's happening. 
And then third, Jesus talks. He talks around his signs. So he does these wondrous things, and then his mouth opens, and his words come out. And sometimes they reinvent the sign. Like what happened today. Sometimes they go, they, they take what you thought was the sign and they add something so much more to it uh, that could never have happened in just the act or the setting. Just like in baptism. Right? The words that people share uh, bring a depth to, to their baptism. A depth for the fellowship to understand and appreciate. So I'm sharing that with you because as we turn to the fifth chapter and as we begin to climb into this third sign, it's going to develop that way. It's going to develop from, there's going to be the act, the sign itself, and then there's going to be a little more setting that's kind of applied to the sign that gives us a little more depth. And then Jesus is going to say something towards the end that, that really just comes from a new place and tells us about himself. So with that said, Let's look at chapter 5, verse 1. And I'm going to read the sign. So roughly 1 through 9. This is the third miracle in the Gospel of John. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool. An Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Let's stop there. So a little bit about the setting. Incidentally, uh, all the particular detail that's been given to us, actually this, this very pool has been located beyond the shadow of doubt in Jerusalem. It's been excavated. There's five colonnades. Bethesda means two pools, roughly. There's two pools, five colonnades by the Sheep Gate. Um, so I'm not quite sure why we're given all this detail, but we found it. So that's a bonus. Uh, but what you see here, it, and just to explain a little bit about what's happening, maybe a good, a good thing to first show you is look, look in your Bible. You see that there's a 2, a verse 2, and then there's a verse 3, and then there's a verse 5, and then there's a verse 6. You see that? There is a verse 4, and in some of your Bibles, it may be at the bottom of your page. What happened is early on in the 4th century when the Vulgate, which is the, uh, the Latin translation of Scripture, was written, there was almost certainly an annotation in, in the Greek texts uh, that was in the margins. It was called glossing. This is the language. There was a, an annotation next to the Scriptures that explained a little bit about the Scriptures. And in fact, this is what the fourth verse would have said. Okay? 
So it would read this way. I'm going to start in verse 3 and just read into verse 4. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. For an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first at the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. That was, the, that was what was written in the margin. So in other words, somebody back then knew John's writing about the pool, and they go, oh, I, I know what this is. And they added a little back information, which was incorporated into the scriptures because certainly it's accurate. I mean, everything that's told here affirms that background. They just wanted you to know what's happening. And that's roughly what's happening. I'm not saying that John thinks that an actual angel came down. I don't think that's the case. I think he's describing the tradition that on occasion from the spring, the water would stir and the, the can I say superstition? I think it's that. I don't think it's a silly superstition. But there was a belief that an angel was stepping in the water at the stirring and there would be a race to get there and there was a thought that you'd receive some health benefit from it. That is the thought. Now, that verse is certainly, we have determined it was not original. So we found many manuscripts. In fact, every manuscript we find that predates that time doesn't have it. And so we've said, oh, that must have been a note, an addendum which is why it's been put out. But, but it helps us understand a little bit about what's happening here. What you see is around this pool is a multitude. It says a multitude of the lame and sick. A crowd of the infirm have gathered. Why are they there? Because this pool, in their estimation, offers the opportunity for healing. And the account says that Jesus sees this, goes up to this crowd and he walks to one man and he heals him. And before we even talk about the man, I think it's important to, to appreciate this. Our Lord Jesus Christ sees this multitude of sick people, and he heals one of them. Or we could say it this way. He walks up to a multitude of sick people, buzz, but does not heal any of them but one. And there's something in our spirit that I, I think uh, that checks when we get to these things. Like, well, why doesn't he heal everybody? I think, I think if you're outside the faith, you're thinking, well, if, if God, as you say, as your faith says, if God sent his son to save the world, why wouldn't he just heal everybody? And I, I, I link this back, by the way, to the very first sign when Jesus said to, to his mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? I didn't come for this hour. This is the, the fact that Jesus did not come for the purpose of offering a physical healing service. This is not an hour of power. This is not some time where that would misconstrue and confuse us. And in fact, this is the very area of our faith where we are so easily confusable. We want the Lord to solve our physical and material problems. And if he'd solved all your physical and material problems, I doubt you would get to know him. Because we don't want him to delve and mine our soul. It's typically, if it was left to us, we'd say, solve my job, solve my marriage, solve my right knee, and stay out of my heart. And so you want to know, like, if God is going to come to earth, why wouldn't he heal everybody? I'm here to say that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God loved 
the world so much that he sent his son to save all who would believe. There is a plan and an expression of an offering of universal salvation for eternal life and eternal healing for all people, but it is in here. It is to redeem us in here and one day remake us out here. But I think it's important to notice Christ is not being inconsistent here. He's simply not being confusing. But he does go up to one guy. And so what, what, what do we see here? Multitude of people, he walks up to one man, and you have to love his question. Do you want to be healed? You, for 38 years, have been coming to this place, laying on your mat, crippled, and somebody walks up to you and says, do you want to be healed? I mean, it's almost as if, why would I be here if I didn't want to be healed? But this is what I want. I'm going to ask you to imagine I'm going to give you like a reasonable scenario of what I think this is looking like, okay? This is why I think Jesus might have broached the question, apart from maybe some other reasons. If you can imagine this big crowd around the pool, you know, people lame and sick and infirm gathered around the pool, but you have this guy who's laying in his bed in his mattress off in the corner. And Jesus walks up to this crowd and he sees way off in the, like not way off, like a mile off, but off in the corner, a man who's not making any attempt, he's not making any effort to posture himself so as to get into the water. That's what I want you to imagine. Somebody who's there, he's at the pool, but he's just there for the day. He's no longer. And in fact, when Jesus asks him, what does he say? You want to be healed? He says, Lord knows I've tried. He says, I can't ever get healed because I don't have anyone to carry me over there. And he says, I mean, imagine this. Like, when I, when I do this on my arms to get there, some other less sick person steps in my way, hand in the face, not today, old man, takes my spot. I think what Jesus sees is somebody who has given up. on the, He wants healing, but it ain't happening. And he's, this is a person whose physical condition has merged with his identity. Think of it this way. You get in a car accident. You're 18, quarterback of the football team. You get in a car accident, you know, and it does something there, and next thing you know, you're in a wheelchair, right? Well, the initial drama, the initial drama that's going to be in your life is, is this the way I'm going to be? Am I ever going to walk again? That's, that's the first question you say when, you, when the anesthesia wakes up, comes off, is, well, am I ever going to walk again? And, you know, everybody's slow to diagnose, well, maybe, who knows? And you have this, you go through this, I can do it. We can do this, right? This idea of we'll make this happen. We'll make this happen. And then things don't work out right. So next phase you're in is you begin to tamper with those experimental or new tests, right? Because you, you really, really want to walk. So you begin to do anything. You'll go, you'll follow, you'll go to any pool in the city and sit there in order to be the first one in. That's what you'll do. You were desperate. But pretty soon, you, eventually in your life, you come to the reality that I am now crippled. You stop even asking the Lord because it's your reality. I think that's what Jesus is walking up on. I think some of you know what I mean when I say 
there's just times when you stop praying about it because you think your condition and your identity have become the same thing. And they have not. That's what this sign says. What does this sign say? Because we don't need to know about the man. John doesn't give us much about the man because the signs are not about the man. The signs are about Jesus. And this is what the sign says. That the Messiah of the earth walked into a crowd of sick people and saw the least and most broken and was attracted to that person. That's what it says about my God. Is that for his people, God has a special heart for people whose condition and their identity become merged. Easier to say, they are not the same. Get up and go on. That's the sign, right? Here's a little bit of the setting. Oh, I wish some of you could embrace that. I wish I could embrace that. Let's read the ninth verse. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Here's the setting. Oops. It was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. So uh, there's two audiences that encounter this sign. There's the man, uh, there's a return encounter between Christ and the man, and then there's this encounter between Christ and the teachers and scribes of the law. That's what it means when he says the Jews. It's not every Jew. It's the emblematic representation of the Jewishness that was resisting Uh, the message of Christ, okay? That is what John's talking about. I want to talk about the man real quickly because there's there's something right there that we learn about the man. We we learn here, by the way, the man never got Jesus' name. He never even got a sermon. Do you realize in this sign, faith is not an issue? There wasn't wasn't any kind of uh, Roman's road, any kind of question. Now, there ends up being a Roman's road, doesn't there? They run into each other at the temple, which is surprising. Presumably, the man had gone to the temple to give thanks, if if not for the festival, at least to give thanks to the Lord. And that's where Jesus runs into him. And it's here that Jesus says, listen, you're healed. Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Now, in our hearts, there's another place we trip here. We go, does that mean that the man was crippled because he sinned? And I would say the answer is, uh, I don't know, but it doesn't have to mean that. In fact, elsewhere in Scripture, we're told repeatedly in other places, that's not necessarily how it is. So in other areas of the gospel, the people will go, well, Jesus, is this why, is the man sick? Whose sin? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? Whose sin? And Jesus says it wasn't any of their sin. The sin's not the issue 
here. The reason this man was, is like this is so that I can dis- God can display his glory right now. So I'll say this. We cannot, from this text or from the broader scriptures, say that's, that's the case. Likewise, it would be equally wrong to assume that sin does not lead to death. So all, all illness, all infirmity, all death, everything that's less than what the maker made it to be, anything that falls short of the God's intent at the creative moment, all of it is due to sin. And so there's a notion that every time we sin, we breed or cultivate some kind of death in this life. And so what the Lord's doing is he's encountered this man, and this man's healed, and what was simply a healing is now becoming a theology for the man. In other, words, in other words, had he just been healed and gone on his merry way, maybe he would have given thanks to the Lord, but now the framework of the gospel begins to show up. You see this? God heals and then calls his people to be different. That's what's happening here. Now that you are healed, be different. Isn't this, this is God's word to us. He brings healing in our life and then calls us to be different. And that's what, that's what I believe is happening here, is don't make light of the work of the Lord in your life. You're called to be different. We are called to be holy. Remain in me and bear fruit. This is how I know you remain in me, is that you keep my you keep my commandments, that you obey. That's, that, that's what Jesus says, that the, the fruit of his healing work in our life is obedience. So that's what God is, that's what Christ is saying to the man. And amidst all of this, he gets caught by the Pharisees. At first they encounter, they encounter the, the man. They say, what are you doing? Don't you know you can't carry your mat on the Sabbath? Which, of course, we knew that, right? You can't carry your mat. It's considered work, okay? To give, I want to rescue these guys. Before we beat them up, let me rescue them a little bit. It wasn't like they were just jerks that were figuring out nitnoity ways to, to catch people. I don't really think that's happening. What... What was happening, there, particularly here with these laws of the Sabbath, is what started out as a principled approach to deal with the soul on the Sabbath has degraded into the attempt to obey rules. I'll say it this way. There were about 39 rules on the Sabbath. Okay? Now, we're going to laugh at them, in our, in our, in, at least inside, you're going to laugh at some of them. But you need to appreciate the principle. So one rule was, if you, on the Sabbath, if you ran out of flour, and you, wanted to, you could run over to your neighbor's house and say, hey, Charlene, could I have flour? You're allowed to do that. You are not allowed to go over to Charlene's house and say, hey, can I borrow some flour? See the difference? You don't, maybe. One said, can I have it? One said, can I borrow it? One, was, one is uh, a transaction. One is causing, one is in creating on the Sabbath a work relationship. They said, you can't do that. Now, again, on the inside, I'm chuckle, chuckle, chuckle. But on the inside, I'm like, wow, that parses my heart. That actually encounters me on how often do I do that? How often do I make other people work in orders that I can rest? 
Okay? Another one, just to give you an example. If there was a spice that, you, say you had an, ailing, an ailment, a cough, right? And there was a spice that you could use to take to fix your cough. Well, you couldn't take it on the Sabbath. You can't do that on the Sabbath. That's work. That's pursuing health on the Sabbath. But if you happen to eat a meal in which the ingredient of the meal was that spice, well, then you could eat it. And if you felt better, well, then great. But do you see, like, again, chuckle, chuckle, but do you see what's at work? There's this thought of, there's a principle that they're trying to protect, which is on the Sabbath, we try not to further our advantage in life, okay? We try to rest in the Lord, but then they end up building these rules, which in two seconds, we can begin to think how our minds would begin to work around them. Well, this is kind of what this man's being caught in. He's being caught in a technicality. What are you doing carrying your mat on the Sabbath? To which he says, listen, the guy who healed me told me to do this. And the Pharisees do, they, they have a notion here of, they say, well, who told you then? Because in their mind, the man who would mislead is more guilty than the one who was misled. Who was it? And eventually they find out it's Jesus. And this is here in the Gospel of John where we find the first resistance to the Gospel. It's right here in verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath. John in his Gospel is beginning to introduce the first time that the work of Christ in the world is being met with resistance. To which he says, my father is working until now. And I am working. Now, I don't think that sounds radical to us. I think with our our music, our praise music, and the way we talk about God being our Father, we're very theologically low in in the way that we liken ourselves to the Lord. The Lord is not very high in in our tradition. Okay, the Lord is very friendly in our tradition. Among the Hebrews, what Jesus just said would have taken the breath out of them. My father's working now, and I'm working also. They would have, they would have stepped back. In fact, if you keep reading, that's what happens. They would have stepped, well, I'll keep reading. Look at 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. See, persecution. My father's working now, and even I'm working. That's why they tried to kill him. Now, with our ears, you're like, what? Really? But here, listen, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, comma, making himself equal with God. That's what they heard. Let me say it this way. That's what Jesus said. They heard it right. We hear it wrong. They heard it right. In fact, the rest of the text goes on. Jesus says, in case you missed it, and he says it about 10 more times. In other words, in this moment, because really, you got to tell you, the sign hasn't closed out yet. All of this is happening from the pool of Bethesda. He heals the man, and it's still, it's still kind of trying to close itself out, and it's right here that Jesus says, I am equal to the Father. The God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who spoke all things into existence, I am that voice. I am the word. 
from which everything came to be. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying here. And the, the, the Pharisees, you can imagine now, you can appreciate if, as a good Pharisee, not even being able to cope with that statement, that Jesus is actually the Son of God. And this is what you're given today in the sign. Now, if you're in Christ, this sounds easy-peasy Japanesey. Sure, Jesus is God. Sure, it's easy for you because you've been over the hump. If you are not in Christ, this is what you need to hear. The Jesus that we worship, the Jesus of the scriptures, the Jesus of the only book that talks about Jesus, is the Son of God. He is equal with the Father. Through him, all things were made. Everything that was made was made through him. Nothing that has been made was made without him. That that God came to this earth and saw the least of the least and said, get up. That has to. If you are not in the faith, that is decision in front of you. What I'm saying is, is we are not here inviting you to believe that Jesus was a good man. Nor are we inviting you to think that if you work really, really hard, you can get to some angelic pool of healing. We're saying that you are hopeless without God. And that he sits by and waits until you are without hope. In this world, there are many, many, many people who will never get healed because they do not know they are sick. There's, in this city of Jerusalem, there are many people who were not at the pool that day. They were going about their business. In this world, there's many people who think they are not spiritually dead. And they will therefore not get healed. Likewise, there are many, many people, there's a multitude of people who know that they're sick, who are gathered around some idea of healing, but are still content to think that they themselves can produce or get or attain to that healing. If I could just work hard enough, I can get to the pool. Or maybe they're misdirected. Maybe it's the fact that they're at the pool and not before the Lord. That we're looking for healing here or we're looking for healing here. Like, it's not enough for you to think that, yeah, you're sick and you want healing. It's, I am spiritually sick and have no hope but for the Lord himself to say to me, get up. May God bless you through his signs. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, I lift up each person here to you, Lord. Uh, uh, Those in the faith, those friendly to the faith, those suspicious of the faith. those who have some kind of religion, but that when it was, if it was laid out in the sun would not really look faithful. If it was, just, if it was stretched out before your light, Lord, it would, it would look stale. It might look self-serving. Lord, I do think, I, I do, I pray and, and trust that at the very least, Lord, your spirit would do the work 
in people's heart to expose a, a disingenuous spirit. It would be your grace, Lord, if in this room we could just attain to honesty about the way we understand you. But Lord, we know you've done more than that. Lord, you don't simply call out our problem. Lord, you come and heal. Lord, we we praise you this morning that you are a healing God. That on occasion, you make a sign of yourself by healing us physically, but profoundly, Lord, you heal our souls. Lord, you have made a promise to return us to the Garden of Eden, to paradise. You've made that promise. You have, you have secured that promise through your resurrection, Lord. When we experience baptism and observe baptism, Lord, we witness that promise being acted out, that you yourself will help us triumph over death. And Father, I pray that message over this fellowship and all who hear it. We lift you up, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.